Good morning, everyone. How is everybody? It's getting cooler, isn't it? Well, it's much, much warmer in the morning, but it's much better now. Good. How about Elias in prayer for our Heavenly Father? Father God, indeed, where else have we to go? When you alone have the words of eternal life. Father, we pray this morning that we, you will feed us with your word. For our soul is thirsty and hungry. Please teach us and equip us that we may live lives that glorify your name. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, if you are new with us, we have a friend that's new with us. We have been doing uh, the book of John here in Smack for the past few weeks. And today, we'll be looking at the book of John again in chapter 15. We started our book of John, this series, from chapter 13. And these are very crucial chapters, as I've hinted last week, for any disciples of Jesus today. For in these chapters, as Jesus prepares his disciples... For his departure, he's actually teaching them about a brand new age that he will usher in through his death and his resurrection. And that age is the same period of history that you and I are living in today. So these chapters actually have a lot to teach us about the nature of our time and how we are to live in such a time. Last week, Jesus taught the disciples and us what makes this new age so radically different from the previous age. He announced the beginning of the age of the indwelling of the Spirit in the believers. That is, not only had God become man and tabernacle and walked among us, which is a big thing in itself, but God is actually tabernacling in His people, in us, today. And if you have been reading your Bible, and we know the salvation plan of God since the beginning, you have to realize how radical that is. The holy God is living in sinful, finite man. That is radical. What we learned last week is a powerful truth. A powerful assurance. And I pray that it has been an empowering and comforting truth for all of us here. To know that as we seek to live by God's truth in this hostile world that reject our Lord Jesus, we are not alone. His Spirit lives in us. We will suffer, but we have comfort and assurance amid suffering. But the story doesn't and cannot end there, isn't it? For if the reason why Christ came, why he suffered, why he died and was glorified and therefore sent his spirit to dwell in me, is so that I can get to have the Holy Spirit, so that I can don't feel fearful and troubled, so that I can get all the comfort I need, although all that is true, but if that is your only leg to your whole understanding of God's will and his purposes, it's pretty dodgy, isn't it? Because I can inevitably become the center of God's plan. Before I realize it, the comforting truth is hijacked by me to make myself the center of the universe. 
it's all about me. My salvation, my sanctification, my ministry, my growth, my assurance, my comfort. Again, all these may be true. But if that is all, then God's plan really revolves around me. Which cannot be true. Me-centered Christianity, consumerist Christianity, cannot be consistent with the Bible. So, the question is, if the bark doesn't stop at the disciples themselves, why was the Spirit given? In other words, for what ultimate purpose is Jesus dwelling in his disciples by his Spirit? For what purpose? Well, in today's passage, Jesus teaches his disciples what their purpose, their core business is as disciples. What is it that they are empowered by the Spirit to do as they continue to live in an age that Jesus ushered in? Take a look at the passage with me, starting from verse 1. The passage seems pretty straightforward. In verse 1, Jesus introduces the imagery of the vine. I'm the true vine, and my father is a vine dresser. Verse 2, he taught two things. The vine dresser does to ensure that the vine bears fruits. He cuts away, and he prunes the branches. Verse 3 onwards, Jesus applies the imagery to his disciples. And then in verse 4 to verse 6, he elaborates verse 2 and applies it again to his disciples. We therefore discover that the imagery of the vine actually refers to the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. He is the vine, they are the branches. Very simple. And the main point seems to revolve around the idea that there is, very, there is a very tight connection between the disciples of Jesus and bearing fruits. You should have picked that up in the reading. Whatever that means, bearing fruits. The passage begins and ends with bearing fruit. Well, the first connection that we could see between Jesus and disciples and bearing fruit is the disciples' task and purpose is to bear fruit. Take a look at verse 2. He says the vine dresser prunes, isn't it? But prunes for what? Prunes so that the branch may bear more fruit. That is, the disciples are pruned so that, for the purpose that, they may bear more fruits. Similarly, take a look at verse 16. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Why? So that you should go and bear fruit. Jesus says, I chose you, I appointed you for the task, for the purpose of bearing fruits. So that's the first connection. Second connection is that the disciples of Jesus, abiding in Jesus, inevitably bears fruit. Verse 4, The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Followed by verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears fruit. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. So the emphasis seems to be quite clear. The imagery presents to us the inevitableness of fruit bearing by the disciples of Jesus. So we can clearly see in this passage a very tight connection. A tight connection between being the disciples of Jesus and bearing fruits. So I hope we can probably see by now how important this passage would have been to the disciples. For Jesus leaving them soon and they will be left alone, what will their task be after Jesus leaves? What should they be doing and be busy with, be engaging in, in this new age that the Lord has ushered in? What are they going to do? So Jesus reveals to them, as we have seen, that their their task, their purpose in life, as the disciples in this new age is to bear fruit, whatever that means. And I guess this is a very intimate and a very treasured moment for the disciples. Because take a look with me at verse 15 and you'll probably understand why. Verse 15. Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Well, at this moment, I can imagine, again, Jesus bringing his disciples from, well, this, this is an illustration for the engineers, I'm an engineering background, I'm sorry, to the rest of you. I can imagine Jesus bringing his disciples from the factory production floor, up the lift, and into his CEO office. Okay? He goes into the corner, he takes off his glasses, he places his eyes close to the wall, and there was a retina scan. And the wall in front of the disciples just opens up. Jesus just revealed to them the company's master plan, the company's blueprint for the entire universe. The point is, Jesus has shared with his disciples God's master plan for world history. Servants are simply told what to do, but friends are different. Friends are informed of his thinking. They still obey the master as the servants do, but they obey with a great sense of privilege, with full understanding of the master's heart and the master's passion, his motives, his plans and his purposes. So God's plan and God's purposes for the disciples of Jesus, after he leaves, is for them to bear fruit, whatever that means. Fruit bearing, whatever it means, is to be the core business, the core mission in life for the disciples as they live in this new age that Jesus is ushering in. And that should be pretty clear so far, isn't it? So now, the question is, what is fruit bearing? What does that mean? Well, basically, there there have been three suggestions so far. The first suggestion is good works or godliness, which can mean a number of things. Some say it refers to the Pauline way of saying the fruits of the Spirit. Some say it is everything in the disciples' lives 
that bring glory to God, which could include loving one another, or it could be any quality that is a result of being a disciple of Jesus, like experiencing joy and peace, as we've seen in the passage. Second suggestion is that some understand fruit-bearing as making converts. Making converts. In other words, fruitfulness is linked to the mission of the disciples to reach unbelievers. Okay? So the fruit is the converts. The third suggestion is basically to lump the two together. To say that fruit-bearing includes both godliness and mission. Well, I would say that this suggestion may sound very attractive. It is all-encompassing. It's very democratic. But is that what Jesus means? And how do we find out which suggestion is right? Well, many, including myself, have attempted to study the imagery of the vine in the Old Testament in hope that we can gain a background understanding of what Jesus is saying here. And after all, Jesus began by claiming to be the true vine, which seems like he's unmistakably claiming himself to be fulfilling the role of the vine that nation Israel has failed to be, and he's fulfilling the promise. He is fulfilling the promised son of man in Psalm 80 that we just read. So as we read through Ezekiel and Isaiah and the whole Old Testament, we gather a picture of the vine and perhaps that should help us. But this morning, we won't be doing that. Otherwise, it will take us probably four days, if not four hours. <laughs> what we'll do this morning is we're going to limit ourselves and focus on the John Gospel itself, since we've been dealing with John Gospel, to find out what fruit-bearing means in the Gospel according to John. For it should be safe and it should be right for us to assume that if John is using this imagery in chapter 15, it is very likely that he has given his readers enough hints to understand what it means. I guess that would be a fair assumption. Let's begin. John uses the word fruit ten times in the entire Gospel, and only two occurs outside our passage. Eight times it happens in our passage. Those that occur outside the passage, the first one is in John 4. Okay? In John 4, Jesus uses the harvest imagery. He says to his disciples, Lift up your eyes and lift up your eyes and see. The fields are ready for harvest. The word fruit there is used to refer to people. People. People who are ready to be reaped and gathered into God's kingdom. The second occurrence is in John 12. Turn with me to John 12. Take a look at verse 24. Before we read, let us give Brian a bit of encouragement, if he's around, to show him that we remember what he has taught us about John 12. He's not here. Okay. He'll be listening to the sermon on the internet. This is for you, Brian. So what is about John 12? Anything? I hear you say, John 12 is the climax of the first half of the Gospel. Verse 20 reports the arrival of the Greeks, remember? And the Greeks signals that the hour has come. The Son of Man will be glorified very, very soon. Okay? 
So in verse 24 of John 12, John reports to his readers Jesus' climatic statement about his forthcoming glorification in his death. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It bears much fruit. Does that sound familiar? It is the exact same phrase as used in John 15. And what does bearing fruit mean here in chapter 12? Glance down with me to verse 32. Chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, When I'm lifted up from the earth, what will he do? I will draw people to myself. He is saying, just as the death of a seed will inevitably result in much fruit, his death will inevitably draw people to himself. And why should we be surprised anyway? Because this has already been prophesied earlier to us in chapter 11. In chapter 11, Cephas, the high priest, he says, Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So in a nutshell, the first half of the Gospel ends with the expectation that Jesus' death will result in all men being drawn to him bearing much fruit. The two references of fruit-bearing outside John that we have seen inevitably lead us to conclude fruit-bearing as drawing people to Jesus. Yes? But some may say, well, Kenneth, that's for John 4, that's for John 12, not in John 15. We can't just transfer the idea like that. I see your point, and we'll look at John, we'll look at John 15 in a short while. But, given, even if that's so, given that John 12 holds such a climatic position in the narrative of John's Gospel, shouldn't what John says in this chapter, such an important chapter, shape how the readers read the rest of the Gospel, including divine imagery? Which means, even if the fruit in John 12 cannot be read as the fruit in John 15, the fact that when Jesus is lifted up from the earth, he will draw people to himself should inform us what his disciples will be engaged in doing. It must involve drawing people to Jesus naturally. Now turn back to me, with me to chapter 15. And take a look at verse 16. I just spotted Brian, by the way. Verse 16. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your, your fruit should abide. First of all, three observations. First of all, notice that he says, I appointed you. Okay? The word appointed is usually used to mean appointing someone to a particular task and a particular ministry, a 
appointed you to be the apostles, appointed you to preach the gospel. Secondly, notice it says that you should go, you should go and bear fruit. Going is a very strong sounding word. It suggests mission. Thirdly, notice that the fruit that the disciples bear, at, towards the end of the verse, the fruit that they bear, what happens? They should abide. He uses the word abide again. What is it that John has been saying about abide? People. People abide. The disciples abide in Jesus. Now come with me to the end of the chapter, verse 26, over the page. Jesus says, everyone there, screen here, but when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The helper was given to the disciples to empower them to do what? To do the work of bearing witness about Jesus. The work of gathering people to Jesus into God's kingdom. That is their task. So it seems to me that Jesus' point in John 15 is that he is the true vine who has called all people and given them the task of gathering more people into the vine. Last reference in John. Turn with me to John 20 verse 30. This is the key verse. We can't read John without this key verse in mind. Because it is in this verse that the writer John reveals to us why is he writing the gospel in the first place? He says, Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written for what purpose? So that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal, may have life in his name. Which means the entire John Gospel is written to make converts. That people may believe in Jesus and repent and believe. That should say something. That should say something about what the disciples' core business in life should be, shouldn't it? Let's now try to pull the strings together, if I could. Our survey points us to understand fruit as people. Fruit bearing therefore refers to the gathering or the influx of people to Jesus through his disciples. When Jesus is glorified as the Son of Man, through his death and resurrection, he will inevitably draw people from all nations and graft them to himself. The true wine, the true vine, is no longer limited to Israel but to people from every tribe, every language, and every nation. And Jesus continues the work after the cross. He continues to work after the cross. How does he do that? Through the disciples whom he has chosen, 
appointed and empowered with the Spirit and sent into the world. Jesus is doing the work of gathering the people to himself, through the apostles. This conclusion, however, this conclusion on fruit bearing will bound to create problems. I'm not sure if you are nervous already. That is why it is very unpopular. Because the work of mission, drawing to people, drawing people to Jesus, is in itself hard enough. We already have enough guilt feelings in us about the subject without someone, like a preacher, saying that mission is essential to being a disciple of Jesus. Worse still, some of us here might have had this passage taught to us in a very threatening way, that we will lose our salvation if we do not win converts. No fruits, you are not in the vine. Arguing that no converts under your belt negates your professed discipleship. It is a big it is a pastoral problem. But can the solution to this pastoral problem be twisting the text? If we are convinced that that is what the text says. And obviously the answer is no. For scripture must always be king, not our experience. But how? How should we grapple with this then? First of all, we must remember the context of John 13 to 17. Jesus is living soon. The disciples were troubled and afraid, and Jesus is assuring and comforting them. John 15 must be read in a comforting and assuring tone. Jesus is not threatening the disciples here. He already said at the beginning in verse 3, He says, Already you are clean. And verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. So there is no doubt that salvation is secure for them. Jesus is assuring his disciples. Verse 9, take a look. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Jesus reminds them how great his love is for them, just as the Father has loved him. He continues to assure them, if you keep my commandments, I will abide in your love. You will abide in my love. But how can Jesus be sure that they will abide? He continues, he says, Look guys, I kept my Father's commandment and I abide in His love. You will too. I did it. Secondly, it is very important to notice that the command from Jesus is not to win converts. Nowhere in the passage he says, go and win converts. Rather, the command is to remain in him. And the promise is that this will result in fruitfulness. We can't win converts. We can't bear fruit. Verse 4 says clearly, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Verse 5, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. It's clear. 
so the great encouragement and the great promise in chapter 15 is that by abiding in Jesus, that is holding fast to our professional faith, keeping His word, living by them, keeping His commandments, loving one another, abiding in Him, this will inevitably result in fruitfulness. People will be drawn to Jesus, His kingdom will grow. Thirdly, we must recognize the corporate nature of the imagery of the vine. Disciples of Jesus work together in fellowship, having gifts that differ according to the grace that has been given to us. As each part plays its role and does its work, the vine will be fruitful, drawing people of all nations and all tongues to join in the new covenant of God's people. As the growth groups start, think about how your growth group as a ministry team, as a group of people with differing gifts, how you can work together with these different gifts that God has given to us to gather people to Jesus. Under God, the growth group is a mini fruit-bearing machine. I began by asking, if the bug does not stop at the disciples themselves, why then was the Spirit given? In other words, for what ultimate purpose is Jesus dwelling in his disciples by the Spirit? If it is not for me. I hope it is clear now, brothers and sisters and friends, this might be a Copernicus moment for some of us, but the truth is, there is a bigger reason to living than ourselves. We are not at the center of the universe. Neither are we at the center of God's plan. But you might protest, but Christ died for me. Yes, that's absolutely true. Christ died, as we have seen last week, because He loved His Father, because He wants to glorify Him. Take a look at chapter 15, verse 8. By this is my Father glorified. How is He glorified? That you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. The purpose and mission in life for the disciples of Jesus was and continue to be to bear fruit. That is to draw people to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the core business in life to bear fruit, to draw people to Jesus, to gather people into the kingdom of God. For this, for by this, is our Father glorified. And we better, and there's, there's no better thing that we can do, can we, in life than, than to glorify God. The perfect man, Jesus, the man who lived the perfect life that we failed to live, he lived to glorify God. And guess what? He found joy and he had joy in doing that. That is why Jesus could say in chapter 15 verse 11, take a look. He says, These things, that is all these about bearing fruit, are spoken to you. Why? Why is he telling the disciples this? So that 
my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. God gave us the Spirit of Christ so that we may bear much fruit, to be engaged in the task of drawing people to Christ, and therefore give glory to God. By this is our Father glorified, that we bear much fruit. Friends, we are God's creatures. We are designed in such a way, as John Piper likes to say, we are most satisfied, that is most joyful, when God is most glorified. Or our Presley brothers would say, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The man Jesus found joy in glorifying God, and so would we. So let us abide in Jesus, go forth and bear fruit to glorify Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we have the words of eternal life. Father, we thank you that we have been made to live again. And Father, how could we ever keep them in? So Father, we pray that by your Spirit living in us, you may strengthen and equip us to go tell the world that Jesus is Lord and that he has died for all our sins and that he has promised to come back again so that we might live forever with Him. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen.